Good morning, Crowd family. I'm so glad you can join us today. Uh, before we get into uh, our message, I want to take this time to thank Dan Hunter and Pastor Joey for preaching in my absence. They both did an amazing job. Thank you both. I love you, and God bless you. If you have your Bibles, turn to Titus, the book of Titus. Titus, it's right after 2 Timothy and right before Philemon. And today's text is chapter 1 of Titus, verses 1 through 4, and part 1 of our new series, Doctrine and Devotion. Say that. Say Doctrine and Devotion. Uh, this series is from uh, one of the pastoral epistles, letters, uh, and they are a total of three pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and, and Titus, and all written by Paul. Now, before we dive into the text, I want to give you the background on this short but very powerful book. Uh, the key people are Paul and Titus. Paul and Titus. So, so the question is, who, who was Titus? We, we, we know Paul, right? We know who he is and his background. But so who was Titus and where did Titus come from? Well, I believe I can list uh, at least five things about Titus. So just write this down quickly here. Uh, he was a Greek believer. Write that down. He was a Greek believer. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 3. Galatians 2, verse 3. Uh, Paul writes, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So how did Titus get saved? Well, it's believed that he was one of the first Gentile converts of Paul. Now, Paul, early in his ministry, took Titus back to Jerusalem. And you see, Paul wanted to make it very clear that his ministry was to the Gentiles and no better person to have with him than Titus. And what Paul did, Paul used Titus as Exhibit A to show the church that the gospel can go to the Gentiles. In fact, Titus's name, his name means honorable, honorable, and that he was. So he was a Greek believer. Also, he was mature. He was mature. And Paul trusted Titus just like he did Timothy for special assignments. And you see, Paul saw a level of maturity in this young man, Titus. In fact, Paul sent Titus with a letter to Corinth, a church known for its carnality, and Paul had confidence in him, in Titus, because he was mature enough to take the responsibility. So he was a Greek believer. He was mature. And also he had a shepherd's heart. I love this. He had a shepherd's heart. And I want you to write uh, this, uh, this scriptures down, these scriptures down. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 16 through 17. 2 Corinthians 8, 16 through 17. And by the way, in chapters 2, 7, 8, and 12 of 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions Titus' name a total of nine times. So that's significant. 2 Corinthians 8, 16 through 17 says this, Thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. I'm going to read that again. Paul's writing this. Thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. In other words, what Paul is saying, the same way I care for you, Titus cares for you. Verse 17, for Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm, get this now, and on his own initiative. In other words, friends, Paul is saying, I didn't have to force this kid into going. He volunteered for the mission. So he was a Greek believer, he was mature, he had a shepherd's heart, and he was a man of integrity. He was a man of integrity. I write this down, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. And Paul writes, Now I am ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you because I want, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for the children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expand myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you, yet craftily fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent you? I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus, this is what it says, Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did he not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? So Paul loved the Corinthian believers, and it wouldn't take advantage of them. And this is why he sent Titus 
because he knew, Paul knew, that Titus wouldn't take advantage of them as well. Now, look at the text. Well, I'm going to read the text again to you. Did, did we not walk in the same footsteps? Okay, did we not walk in the same footsteps and by the same spirit? So, so what he's saying is Titus kept in step with a heart. What it's saying, that Titus kept in step with the heart of Paul, and he was also led by the Holy Spirit as Paul was led by the Holy Spirit. Not to mention that Titus was entrusted with collecting an offering from the Corinthians, and that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. And Paul trusted Titus. Why? Because he was a man of integrity. So he was a Greek believer. He was mature. He had a shepherd's heart. He was a man of integrity. And he had, a, he had the gift, excuse me, he had the gift of administration. He had the gift of administration. And I want us to look at verse 5 of chapter 1 of Titus. By the way, verse 5 is a key verse of the whole book. Again, uh, verse 5 of chapter 1 of Titus, and it says this, the reason, Paul writes, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now listen, Crete was a difficult place to do ministry. And you see, Paul started something and he wanted Titus to finish and he wanted Titus to address and to take care of the problems and the issues in Crete. And Titus had the gift of administrating people. He was a troubleshooter. So that's what we know about Titus. Now, the key place, well, it's Crete. The key, key place is Crete. It's an island, and it's off uh, the mainland of Greece in the Mediterranean Sea. And it was notorious for treachery, violence, and sexual corruption. In fact, Zeus was their chief god. So the question is, how did the gospel get there? How did it get to Crete? Well, remember, the Cretans um, were at Pentecost. And in, in, in fact, that's in Acts chapter 2, verse 11. And some of the Cretans got saved and brought the gospel back to Crete. And when Paul got there, uh, there was already a work of God going on. So that's the key place is Crete. Uh, the author, well, obviously it's Paul. In verse 1, it addresses that Paul's the one himself that wrote this letter. And he wrote Titus uh, sometime between, the book of Titus sometime between A.D. 62 and 64. And while he ministered, he wrote this while he ministered in Macedonia between his first and second Roman imprisonments. Now, Paul's purpose for writing this letter was to remind Titus, as was stated in verse 5, of his work to or, listen, in or, his work in organizing the church and appointing elders, also to warn him about false teachers and to encourage him. Paul wanted to encourage him in pastoring the different kinds of people in the church. Titus had a difficult task, and, and he needed encouragement. That being said, friends, it's not easy being a pastor. And I got to tell you, I, I love what I'm doing. I'm blessed doing what I'm doing. And I love all of you. You're an amazing congregation. You're easy to love. But there are seasons that uh, it's, it's difficult being a pastor. There are difficult seasons in the midst of being a pastor. In fact, the number one need of pastors is personal encouragement. And so we need encouragement as pastors. In fact, I, I want to thank all of you that sent me letters and gifts, emails and texts on Pastor Appreciation Sunday, and it just really lifted my spirits and totally encouraged me, and I know it also encouraged Pastor Joy, but Pastor Joy and myself, we need your encouragement. So Paul wanted to encourage Titus. So Paul wrote this letter to endorse Titus, to encourage Titus, and also to instruct Titus. The key themes of this book, the key themes are doctrine and good works. Say that, doctrine and good works. Doctrine simply is a system of beliefs, a system of beliefs. And, and Paul understood that when a body believers embraces sound doctrine, the result is changed and purified lives that produce good deeds, good works. Listen, doctrine is extremely important, friends. Doctrine does matter. Got it? Say that. Doctrine does matter. Now, I love what Pastor Charles Swindoll said. He said this, Many churches today focus more on the form of their worship, music styles, 
the lighting and building designs. Then they do the, on the content of the faith they mean to proclaim. And while the form of a church's worship is vital to reaching its community for Jesus, without a firm base of sound doctrine, the church will lay its foundation in shifting and sinking sand. Make doctrine a priority in your life as well as encouraging it in your churches. And he goes on to say this, nothing is more significant than a solid foundation in Christ. Nothing is more motivational than grace to live a life of good deeds. And by the way, Titus is called the epistle of good works because the term good work or good works is mentioned quite often in this book. In fact, in chapter 1, Paul sets forth good works in the church life. In chapter 2, good works in the family and individual life. And in chapter 3, good works in the public life. Now, what's God's character in this book? God's character is this. God is kind, God is loving, God is merciful, and God is a promise keeper. I love that. Say, God is a promise keeper. In fact, friends, this book could be divided into two sections. Chapter 1 is church organization, and chapters 2 and 3 is Christian obligation. Again, chapter 1, church organization. Chapters 2 and 3, Christian obligation. So Paul leaves Titus in Crete to deal with the difficult problems and issues in the church to get the church in right order. If you got it, say got it. Say amen. The title of my message today is The Common Faith. Say that, The Common Faith. Two points from our text. If you're ready, say yes. Say yes. Come on, say yes. Here we go. Point number one is this. Paul's assignment from God. Write that down. Paul's assignment from God. Now we have five subpoints underneath point number one, so I want you to follow me here. First of all, notice his, speaking of Paul, his identity. His identity. Write that down. And then we're going to look at verse 1a. Verse 1a. It says this Paul, because he's the author, the writer. Paul, a servant of God. It might also be rendered a bond servant of God. And you know what, friends? If Paul had a business card, I believe that would be his title on his card. Paul, a servant, a bond servant of God. Now, he could have pulled out his resume and referred to himself as a scholar, as this great theologian. He could have appealed to his religious heritage, his unique calling, his authorship of so many books of the New Testament, of being brought up or caught up to the third heaven, but he didn't. Paul chose a word that means what? Slave, servant, bondservant. In fact, the word bondservant in the Greek is doulos. Doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S, D-O-U-L-O-S, doulos. And it refers to one who completely, get this now, completely surrenders himself to the will and authority of another or, and I love this, one whose will is swallowed up, swallowed up in the will of another. You see, Paul begins his letter by proclaiming, by identifying, love that, identifying himself as a servant, as a bond servant of God. Now, in the Old Testament, there's the term, the law of the bond servant. Say that, the law of the bond servant. And according to this law, a slave could refuse his freedom and could choose to remain forever, say forever, forever with his master because he loves his master. And he loves his master because his master has show, shown him kindness and care. And so that slave who wanted to be a slave for life would be taken to the priest who would pierce the earlobe, this indicating, friends, that he, this slave, was marked for life. Say that, marked for life to serve his master completely and permanently. And you'll find that in Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Exodus 21, 1 through 6. And you see, Paul, Paul knew that like a servant, like a bond slave, he was marked for life for life to serve his master completely and permanently. 
And he completely, Paul completely surrendered himself to the will and to the authority of God. And he understood, because of that, he understood that he had no, listen now, no personal rights. Listen, we need to learn, we need to learn something here. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Come on, if you're saved, say amen. When we got saved, got to get this, when we got saved, we became servants of God, right? Therefore, we have no rights. We have no rights. Our life belongs to him. We do what he says. He bought us at a price. And because he bought us at a price, we have no rights. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, you might know this by heart. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Listen to what he says. Paul writes, you are not your own. You were bought at a what? At a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Got it? So we have no personal rights. Listen, slavery, listen, slavery was a very common place in Paul's day. There were about 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. In fact, the total population of the Roman Empire was 120 million, so half were slaves. So his readers could totally identify with Paul's verbiage here. So I want you to follow me here, okay? Follow me here. When it comes to slaves, the slave was totally owned by the master. I'm going to say that again. The slave was totally owned by the master. Now, if you're saved, if you're saved, you're God's possession. Got it? You're God's possession. He owns you. You're not your own. He owns you. So the slave was totally owned by the master. If you're saved, you're owned by God. Also, the slave existed. The slave existed for the master. I love that. The slave existed for the master. Okay, He had no other reason for his existence than for the master. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Again, here we go. You have no rights. Say that. Say, I have no rights. Listen, you exist for God. The only rights you have are those of your master, those of your God. Also, the slave existed to serve his master. The slave existed to serve his master. He had no other purpose in life. Got to get this. He had no other purpose in life but to serve his master, to do what the master said. He was at the master's disposal at any hour, day, or night. Listen, the number one purpose in your life, my life as believers, is to worship and serve God. To worship and serve God. One more thing about the slave. The slave belonged exclusively to his master. I'm going to say it again. The slave belonged exclusively to his master. He was allowed no will or no ambition outside that which his master allowed him to have. There was to be a total surrender of every part of the slave's being to the will of the master. So that being said, question, is your will totally surrendered to the will of God, your master? Is he your master? Is he your master? Friends, Paul had enslaved himself to God to be his servant, to obey his will and serve him completely and permanently because he loved his master. He loved his master. And if you love your master, God, if you love him, if I love him, we'll be surrendered to his will. We belong to him. So there's a lesson here. As always, what's the lesson? Well, here's a lesson. Know your identity. Know your identity. If you're saved, say amen. Come on, if you're saved, say amen. Yes, you are a child of God. Yes, you are a friend of God, but you are also a servant of of God, one who's completely surrendered to the will and authority of God. You are marked, and I love this, you are marked for life to serve your master God completely and permanently. And by the way, as Christians, we are the, the only slaves in history who are allowed to sit with their master in his throne. Prove it, I will. Ephesians 2.6 
Ephesians 2, 6, Paul writes, And God raised us up with Christ. Now listen to what he says. And seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Good place to say amen. Say amen. So we see Paul's identity. The second subpoint is this. His, speaking of Paul, his office. His office. Write that down. Say that. Say his office. Look at verse 1b with me. Verse 1b. And an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's not just a servant, a bondservant of God, but also an apostle, say apostle, of Jesus Christ. The word apostle in the Greek is apostolos. It means a sent one, a sent one. And it came to be used of a delegate or messenger sent on a mission with authoritative credentials as the personal representative of another. And friends, it originally meant a king's representative, an ambassador, one who was sent out. Now listen, an ambassador carried with him all the authority of the country and the king which sent him. Now you, you got to get this, okay? You got to get this. Paul is first a slave, right? Paul is first a slave, and second, he is a sent one. He's a slave, and then he's a sent one. He was sent out as a representative of heaven and a representative of King Jesus. He operated under, this is now, his divine authority. Now follow me here. When, when Paul spoke, he spoke for God. He acted as a representative of the throne of heaven. Now, one of the requirements, speaking of apostles, one of the requirements uh, to be an apostle, uh, one uh, to hold an office of an apostle, was the experience of seeing the risen Christ. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 and 2, there Paul says, um, Did I not see Jesus our God, the risen Lord? And he's referring to the fact that he did because he saw Christ on the road to Damascus, that in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Acts 9, verses 1 through 9. So Paul was qualified to be an apostle. Now, the apostles in the New Testament were the ones who laid the foundation of the church. And, and that being said, the, the, in the strict sense, in the strict sense, we are not apostles. Got it? In the strict sense, we are not apostles. We did not lay the foundation of the church as the early apostles did and we have not seen the risen Christ. If you got it, say got it. But in the broad sense, got to get this, in the broad sense, we are all apostles. Got it? We are all apostles. In other words, we are all representatives of our King, of our King Jesus Christ. We have been called by God to be his spokesperson to a lost world. If you got it, say got it. In fact, missionaries... Uh, would be considered apostles. And by the way, missionary is the Latin form of apostle, one who is sent out. Got it? So we saw, we see, excuse me, we see Paul's identity, Paul's office, and the third subpoint is Paul, his his mission. Say that, his his mission. Write that down. His mission. And look at verse 1c. We're still in verse 1. Verse 1c, he writes, For the faith of God's elect. Got it? For the faith of God's elect. Now, we don't have time to get into a detailed explanation of the doctrine of election, except to say that the elect, according to Paul, are those who have accepted the gospel message and are therefore secure before God. Okay, they are they are those whom God chose from before the foundation of the world to receive his salvation. Okay? Go back to the text. He writes, speaking of his mission, he writes, for the faith, for the faith of God's elect. Say, say for the faith. Paul understood that his position as a servant of God. And an apostle was in harmony, say harmony, in harmony with the faith of God's elect, with what was believed among the people of God. This, was what, this is what we call the doctrine, say the doctrine, what Christians in common believe together. 
we call the doctrine. Now, now, now say the faith. Follow me here. Say the faith. And I want you to write this down. Jude chapter 1, verse 3. There's only one chapter in Jude. Jude chapter 1, verse 3. Write that down. And, and, and it, it says this in, the, in Jude 1, 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you, listen to what he says, and urge you to contend for the faith. Say that, contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Now the term there is used in the sense of this collection of Christian truth, that which Christians believe in common. Now listen, just like Jude, Paul is emphasizing the importance of truth, the importance of sound doctrine. That's the faith, is what we believe, sound doctrine, the essentials of God's word. Amen? Now, if you're saved, say amen. We are people who believe things in common. There's a common belief, a, a common body of doctrine. This is the common faith. Amen? The common faith. Love that. Look at verse 1D. And their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. You see, Paul encouraged the elect as he links doctrine with duty. That's his mission here. Linking doctrine with duty. Listen, friends, the truth. Doctrine always leads to godliness. Got it? It always leads to godliness, always leads to, listen now, a life devoted to godliness. Listen, listen, truth, truth should have an effect on how we live. It should on how we live. Now, if you're safe, say amen. Come on, say, if you're safe, say amen. Listen, knowledge of God's word is more than just knowing facts. It's not just filling our, our, our minds, our brains with information, but it's meant for transformation. And I've always said information without application is hallucination. Friends, truth, listen now, truth, sound doctrine, God's word must transform the way that we live. Proper belief must lead to practical behavior. What we believe affects the way that we live. In fact, we can identify God's elect because they respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and live their lives after that gospel. To simply put it, friends, whoever God chooses, God changes. A new life demands a new lifestyle. Listen, get this. Salvation can never, never, never be separated from sanctification. Got it? Listen, what we believe, Christians, I'm talking to you, what we believe determines how we behave. And our behavior is to reflect the character of God. I'm going to say it again. What we believe determines how we behave. And our behavior is to reflect the character of God. Of God. John Piper said this Godliness is a love for the things of God and a walk in the ways of God. I love that. So, lesson here's a lesson grow in godliness. Grow in godliness. Write this down 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. And Paul writes, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Did you get that? Train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness, say, say godliness, has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So how do we grow in godliness? 
by growing in our knowledge of the truth of God's Word. Doctrine, His Word, truth. This is why we need to be in His Word. This is why we need to have a hunger for the Word of God. This is why we need to listen to to the messages on Sundays and on Wednesdays. We need to, to bury our face and to flood our lives with the very Word of God so that we'll grow in godliness. And not only grow in godliness, but live out that truth in our lives that we would reflect the very character of God. So his identity, his office, his mission, and notice the fourth sub-point is his confidence, Paul's confidence. Write that down, Paul's confidence. And look at verse 2a with me, Paul's confidence, his confidence. Verse 2a says this, he writes, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. Now the word hope, the word hope here in this text is not some un, is not some, excuse me, is not some unclear wishing for something, just hoping that it will come true. In the Greek, the word hope is elpis, E-L-P-I-S, E-L-P-I-S, elpis, which refers to a, a confident expectation and anticipation. I want you to get this. We can live with a confident expectation and anticipation of the hope of eternal life because it rests on the promise of God. This hope, listen now, is anchored in the truth of God's word. That was Paul's confidence and that is our confidence. Now get this. This hope is not hope so, but hope for sure. Got it? This hope is not hope so, but hope for sure. And by the way, let me say this. Eternal life is not simply something that we will someday possess, but that which we already possess through trusting in Jesus Christ. Prove it, I will. John 3.36 promises us that. John 3.36 says, The one who believes in the Son has. Got it? Has. In other words, possesses eternal life. Now listen, eternal life is so certain that it doesn't begin when you die, but rather kicks off at conversion. And Jesus said it this way in John 17, verse 3. John 17, verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's why life is meant to be lived, friends, with abundance right now. You see, eternal life is not just some vague hope, friends, in the future. It's an absolute reality for believers now. Follow me. This reality of eternal life enables us to endure whatever suffering we may experience here on earth. Got it? So whenever, and I know we're going through hard times, whenever you're facing a difficult time, just remember your hope, your hope in eternal life. Look at verse 2b, which God who does not lie. Did you get that? Which God who does not lie. In the Greek, that literally reads the non-lying God. You see, the basis for our belief, for our eternal hope, is grounded in God himself, who not only does not lie, but cannot lie because of his perfect and holy character. Good place to say amen. Now, friends, this truth about God is in direct contrast to the Cretan culture as spelled out in verse 12. I want you to look at verse 12. Jump to verse 12, friends. Now, listen, the Cretan people had acquired a notoriously bad reputation in the Roman world. And Paul, what he does, he cites one of their poets, Epimenides, that's his name, Epimenides, uh, and, 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 he, and he quotes this, Cretans, in verse 12, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Cretans, verse 12, are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. 
he cites one of their poets. Now I want you to follow me here. The Cretans were prone to see God in their image and therefore think that he, God, is less than truthful. Well, here Paul makes it very clear that God is free from all deceit, right? Paul says, God who cannot lie. Write this down, Numbers 23, 19. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. Hebrews 6, 18, write that down. Hebrews 6, chapter 6, verse 18. It is impossible for God to lie. Do you get that? It is impossible for God to lie. Don't you love that? Friends, God is the very essence of truth and in Direct opposition is the devil who is described by Jesus in John 8, 44, John 8, 44, as being the father of lies, right? So God is truth. The devil is the father of lies. Friends, God's character backs up the hope of eternal life because he said it, it is true, and it will happen. It's all based on his character. Look at verse 2c. Promised, promised before the beginning of time. This was set in eternity, right? Friends, a promise is only as good as the one who gives it. How awesome it is that our eternal life rests on the truthfulness, reliability, dependability of a God who simply cannot lie. Love that. It's awesome. So there's a lesson. Well, here's a lesson, okay? Here's a lesson. We can count on God's character. Got it? We can count on God's character. My soul, my heart, my life rests in the fact that I can count on God's character. Amen? He's loving, He's truthful, He cannot lie. He gives grace. He's amazing. God's character. So we saw his identity, speaking of Paul, his identity, his office, his mission, his confidence. And the fifth sub-point is his responsibility, Paul's responsibility. Write that down. Let's look at verse 3. If you're still with me, say amen. Verse 3. And, and at his, speaking of God, appointed season, he has brought, in other words, manifested, manifested or to make visible or apparent. So, and at his appointed season, he has brought his word to light through, through the preaching entrusted to me, Paul says, by the command of God, our Savior. I'm going to read that again. And at his, speaking of God, appointed season, he has brought his word, right, manifested his word to light through the preaching Entrusted to me, that's Paul's responsibility, by the command of God, our Savior. God knew, listen, God knew exactly what he was doing in the timing when he sent his son. In fact, Galatians 4.4, write that down. Galatians 4.4 says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Friends, Christianity came into the world at a time when it was uniquely possible for its message to spread rapidly. I want you to follow me here. There was a common language at that time. That was Greek, which was the language of trade, business, and literature. Travel was comparatively easy and safe because of the security of the Roman Empire. And also, the world was largely at peace under the Pax Romana. William Barclay said this, The world was uniquely conscious of its need for a Messiah and Savior. There was never a time when the hearts of men were more open to receive the message of salvation which the Christian missionaries brought. There's a lesson. Here's a lesson. Trust God's timing. Trust God's timing. I don't know what you're going through in life. I don't know what you're praying for. But you need to trust God's timing. His timing is perfect. Don't run ahead of God. Don't rush. God's timing is perfect. And by the way, God is never in a hurry. So why are you? 
trust God's timing. Let's go back to the text. Back to the text. Verse 3 again. Back to the text. And at his appointed season, he has brought, in other words, manifested to make visible apparent his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. So Paul understood that preaching was entrusted to him, in other words, committed to him, given to him as a stewardship, a trust by the command of God our Savior. Now listen, preaching is the way that God's eternal work meets, meets, excuse me, meets people today. It's the way God's word is made evident. It's the way that God's word, in other words, is made manifested, manifested, that it's made manifested. Now listen to how passionate Paul felt about his responsibility to preach God's word. Now I want you to write this down, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 16 through 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 16 through 17. And it says this, Yet when I preach the gospel... I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Was compelled, moved to preach. Woe to me, Paul says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. Friends, Paul, Paul's responsibility, like ours, is to get the message out. If we are believers, we should be compelled to share the gospel. That's our responsibility. So what's the lesson? Here's the lesson. The lesson is this. Share the gospel. Say that. Share the gospel. Share the gospel. It doesn't have to be behind a pulpit or in front of a camera, friends. It can happen in the most informal, one-on-one ways as we share the gospel. Romans 10.14 says, How then can they call, Romans 10.14, How then then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Well, someone's got to tell them, right? Someone's got to share the gospel. And friends, we have opportunities all around us. Right now, COVID-19, Right now, we should be spreading and sharing the gospel. People are so open right now. They're hurting. They're discouraged. We have, listen, we have the answer to life, the hope they need. What a great opportunity right now to share the gospel with someone. Great opportunities, God moments. Amen? Point number two. We saw Paul's assignment from God Point number two is Paul's affection for Titus. Paul's affection for Titus. Write that down. Paul's affection for Titus. Look at verse 4a. Verse 4a. And Paul writes, and I love this. I love Paul's heart. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith. There's that word, common faith. Common faith. The faith. Common faith. Write this down. 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians 2.13, it says that, that Titus was a genuine brother to Paul. A genuine brother to Paul. Listen, Paul stood in support of a common faith with Titus. It's a common faith, not an isolated one. And Paul was for the church and, and the community of all believers. You see, there's a body, say body, a body of truth, a body of truth of doctrine. Say that, a body of truth, of doctrine that belongs to us collectively as Christians. Christians, our common faith. Paul and Titus had a father and son relationship because of their common faith. In the Greek, the word common is koinos. In the Greek, the word common is koinos. K-O-I-N-O-S, koinos. And it refers to what is held in common with others. And so by using this term, Paul reminds us of that which we hold in common with all believers, regardless of nationality or status. So what's the lesson? Here's the lesson. Commit to what we have in common. 
commit to what we have in common. In John 17, 21, John 17, 21, Jesus prayed that all of them may be one Father just as you are in me and I am in you. You see, the, the biblical model is unity within diversity. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. We need to commit to what we have in common. Got it? We, we can disagree on the non-essentials. That's a given. We can disagree on non-essentials. But we cannot disagree on the essentials of doctrine, the truth. So we need to commit to what we have in common. We need to commit to the essentials, the faith, sound doctrine. We need to commit to that, what we have in common. Can I get an amen? So here Paul, is what he's doing, he's passing the mantle to Titus, over to Titus, and what he's simply saying is that I'm putting him in Crete, putting Titus in Crete to follow up, to continue to do what I started. That's what Paul is saying. That's what he's doing. And you see Titus, who, like Timothy, was Paul's apostolic representative, and both were to carry on the work that Paul had started. Now, look at verse 4b, the last part of verse 4. Paul writes, Grace, say grace, and peace, say peace, from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul, love this about Paul. Paul took the Greek word, which is charis, or charis, which means grace, and the Jewish word shalom, which is peace, and combined them together. I love that. And he did it for two reasons, I believe. First, to unite the Jews and the Greeks. To unite the Jews and the Greeks. And also, what he does here is he gets right into the message of the gospel to promote the gospel. You see, grace is a source of salvation. Peace is a result of salvation. I'm going to say it again. Grace is a source of our salvation. Peace is a result of our salvation. Grace is positional. Peace is practical. And together, they flow from God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to point out something. In the King James, it says grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, mercy, and peace. Paul only adds the word mercy when he writes to Timothy and Titus. Why? Because pastors need more mercy than anyone else. That's why I believe he added the word mercy because pastors need more mercy than anyone else, and we do. Now, I want you to notice, back in verse 3, Paul calls God our Savior. Say that, God our Savior. And here in verse 4, he refers to Christ, Jesus, our Savior. And he does the same thing in chapter 2, verse, verses 10 and 13, where he calls God our Savior and then refers to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He then repeats this a third time in chapter 3, verses 4 and 6, and says, God our Savior and Jesus Christ our Savior. You see, Paul is putting Christ on the same level as God the Father. And in Paul's mind, Jesus Christ is fully God. Say amen. Say amen. Jesus Christ is fully God. Now, real quick here, what are the takeaways here from this message? Well, they were found in our lessons. Know your identity. You are a servant, a bond servant of God. You belong to Him. Grow in godliness. Spend time in the Word of God. Right? Get in the Word of God. Right? Get in the Word of God. Let the Word of God get into you and then display His Word. Live it out in your life. Count on God's character. Trust God's timing. Share the gospel. And finally, commit to what we have in common. The common faith. Someone say, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for 
your word, for your truth, that it speaks to us. And we are so blessed, Lord, to have your word at, at the palm of our hands and in the depths of our hearts. And might, Lord, we continue to grow in the knowledge of truth and live out that truth in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Someone say amen. Listen, if there's anyone out there who you've never, you said you want Christ in your life, you never asked him to come into your life and you want to be saved today, we want to give you that opportunity to do so today. And so Romans 10, 9 says this, if you confess your mouth that Jesus, with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the word says you will be saved. You will be saved. So that's you. You want, you want to trust Christ to come into your life. You want to follow him. If that's you, I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner, and I need you to come into my life to cleanse me, to save me, to change my life. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord and believe within my heart that God raised you from the dead. I receive you this day. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, justified, satisfied, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me. And from this day forth, I will live for you until you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So if you prayed that prayer, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at cryout.org. Again, that's contact at cryout.org. Again, if you made a decision, we would love to hear from you. So I hope you enjoyed today's message. Again, read uh, all three chapters and... Um, just loving what God is teaching us through this word, through his word. And I pray that you would have a wonderful Sunday, a wonderful week. God bless you and see you.